San Diego's talk radio leader, 760 KFMB presents It's Your Money and Your Life. For the next hour, Richard Musio and Joe Vecchio will educate and inform you on matters related to your financial future, your life, and your leisure. Now, with It's Your Money and Your Life, here are Richard and Joe. All right, everybody. My name is Joe Vecchio, your coach, announcer, and producer. Coming to you from KFMB Studios with 50,000 watts of power. We're heard not just in San Diego County, but Orange County, L.A. County, up the coast of Seattle, and a good night down to Cabo, out to the desert. If you download the app for 760 KFMB or tune in radio, you can hear us on any device as this show airs. And, of course, all these podcasts are commercial-free on iymoney.com. Now time to introduce the main man of the hour. He's a CPA extraordinaire, accomplished marathon runner, a best-selling author, a philanthropist, and a family office expert advising several high net worth families. His name is Richard Musio. Richard, good evening. How are you tonight? I am doing great, Joe. I'm going to do a shameless plug for my own charity event, the All Oceanside right. Turkey Trot. All right. OceansideTurkeyTrot.com. We need everybody out there Thanksgiving morning. Right. Raising money for about 75 charities. You know, Oceanside, but making this even better, the San Diego County Board of Supervisors has proclaimed Thanksgiving Day to be Move Your Feet Before You Eat Day, All named right. after our foundation in San Diego. I was thinking that's pretty cool because. That whole Thanksgiving title, that's so 18th century. Yeah. We've got to have like a new title for Thanksgiving. So now yeah. it's Move Your Feet Before You Eat Day and of course, here in San Diego County. Yeah. And, of course, we are still an award-winning show again this year. We, we won, are. We won a few more awards in the uh, radio series category, and then I had my little uh, eight-week jaunt there, and we really cleaned up pretty well with uh, the best talk, interview, and call-in show, et cetera. So you've got your, some good talent on your hands here, Richard. <laughs> we do. I think it's like 21 awards or something in four years, right? Yeah, something got, like that. I got three firsts, uh, second, and a third, so pretty good. And, and two of those were for uh, for this particular show. But uh, in, and, and, and congratulations to Michelle Ciccarelli Lirac, uh, and the, that's significant for tonight's show. But uh, she, I entered four of her, uh, I guess, six of her shows. Uh, anyway, she won, she won six awards. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable. She won. Uh, Two first place and four second place, but in, in television for UCSD TV. So congrats to her. But anyway, without further delay, because we have some, we've got a couple of powerhouses in here tonight. Uh, this is really a special treat. Not only do we have the premier guest from our show. I guess I'll introduce him first. Uh, that was in uh, October of 2011. 2011. Wow. My good friend, the king of class action lawsuits, uh, Enron was just, uh, his significant case. He's been speaking all over the country and, and, and the state about the, pen, uh, the, the coming pension crisis. Crises, you should it's say. It's not coming. It's yeah, here. Yeah, the, the, right, anyway. the crises plural. But anyway, Bill Lyrak, Bill, welcome back to our show. Glad to be here. I'm a grizzled veteran at this <laughs> point with you guys. <laughs> well, you are a good, you are a good omen, and have always brought good things. And you brought with us, brought to the show tonight, and introduced me to uh, one of the most respected, notable uh, judges on the federal bench, uh, retired now. But uh, boy, what a what an illustrious career in history! And we're going to get into it with Judge Lee Sarakin. Lee, welcome to our show. Pleasure to be here. Wow. So uh, let's just jump into it, Lee. You know, born and raised where, and uh, we'll get into your schooling and your and uh, and your career a little bit. And born case. and raised in Perth Amboy, New Jersey. Not many people can say that. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, moved to, to Maplewood when I was eleven. Also in New Jersey, went to Dartmouth College, Harvard Law School, and then. Uh, Entered the world of the law. Wow. So when you first practiced law, what did you do? I, I was a trial lawyer. I went with a uh, split off of a firm, father and son, who had an incredible practice, but uh, no trial lawyers. And uh, I have to first admit that I found it very difficult to speak in class when I was in law school. So the idea of being a trial lawyer 
was far from my mind. Mm-hmm. But they offered me money that I needed desperately. Mm-hmm. And in my first year as a lawyer, I became a trial lawyer. Mm. Civil or criminal or both? Um, almost uh, 100% civil. I did some volunteer criminal work, but I was a civil trial lawyer. And plaintiff or defense? Or both. Both. Okay, wonderful. So what was your first, you remember your first big victorious moment in court where you say, this, I really picked the right career and I'm loving this? Uh, well, I, I can tell you um, my first case, uh, a bunch of young men uh, had formed uh, a kosher butcher store <laughs> and they advertised their prices, which apparently was against the normal practice. And as a result, they lost their certification. This is around what year, roughly? Oh, I would say 1955. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, New York, I take it, right? No, New Jersey. Jersey. Okay. And I went to court to get an injunction uh, requiring them to give them back their certification. And I'll tell this part of the story very quickly. Uh, The judge was a fellow named Mark Sullivan, Irish. And one of the witnesses was a rabbi, (laughs) and he kept referring to the old sailors during the course of his testimony. And finally, Judge Sullivan called me into chambers and asked, who are these old sailors that the (laughs) rabbi is talking about? And I went and talked to my clients, and they burst out laughing, and they said, he's not saying old sailors, he's saying horse sailors. Yeah, horse sailors. Wholesalers. Oh, wholesalers. The judge wouldn't know wholesale. He yeah. always buys retail. Anyway. Well, I'll say from that uh, inauspicious beginning, Your Honor, uh, you had quite a career rising to the top of the Third Circuit. Mm-hmm. Have him tell us about that. Well, yeah, we're going to get. Yeah, we're going to get into that because. Um, well, I mean, he did work for Bill Bradley first, right? Senator yes, Bill Bradley. Um, uh, Bill Bradley was a client of mine, yeah. and um, we became very good friends. And when he decided to run for the Senate. He asked me if I would be his finance chairman. Uh, I said, no, I'd rather be your speechwriter because I know nothing mm-hmm. about raising money. And he said, that's exactly why I want you. I don't want anybody that has a tradition of being a bag man. And he was a pretty smart guy, Bill. Wasn't he a Rhodes Scholar? He was a Rhodes Scholar. Yeah. Bill University. Bradley was, was everything. Yeah. He, was he actually a, missed his first year in the NBA to attend university in England. That's Tremendous right. good force for race relations, yes, too, and a great. real role model. He went. He's a Rhodes Scholar. He was the highest scorer in basketball at Princeton. Uh, he was just a remarkable person. Should have been president, but yeah, he uh, would have been a good president. Two he, championships. And how tall Knicks. was he? About what six five, six six, six, six seven? Five. Yes, he wasn't that tall. I'd say six six. Hmm. Yeah. But, you know, he was a great senator, but I think he became so frustrated with the inability to get anything anything positive done that that he left, and and it was a great loss. Yes, uh, he really got discouraged that he could not accomplish anything, and now he's out there in the world of making money. Mm. But he's still very active. He writes books. He gives uh, political speeches. They did call him Dollar Bill. Yes. (laughs) But uh, so anyway, getting nominated to the bench, President Carter did that for you, right? In, yes. In, in 79. So um, we definitely want to talk about that. Uh, probably probably with flying colors, I'm assuming the Senate, uh, don't they, did they give you pretty? Well, the first time around, uh, they didn't know me, and I got, um, I think, unanimous support. But when I was nominated to the Court of Appeals and I had a reputation, 
I think I just eked by. I don't know the exact vote, but uh, I think maybe one or two Republicans voted for it. <laughs> I was going to say, you said you had a reputation. Could you, could you describe that reputation for our listeners? Well, it, I, th- I think I was known as a liberal, okay. and um, uh, that did not sit well with a, a large number of, of the Republicans. Mm. Well, the judge was willing to take on very powerful interests, as he did with the major tobacco litigation that was in front of him. And uh, as a result of doing the right thing, drew a lot of criticism and opposition later on. That's a reality. And Mm -hmm. it's why it's hard for judges to be principled and tough when they're on the bench. Yeah, that was um, very much discussed at my uh, Senate hearing in respect to my appointment to the Third Circuit. They focused a lot on that case. I had been removed from the case for saying some very strong things about the tobacco companies. Mm -hmm. And um, I was quizzed vehemently about the propriety of uh, taking the tobacco company for task early on in the litigation. But I thought it was justified. And frankly, I thought the, the world, the nation, ought to know about it. I know that sounds a little pompous. Was that the first wrongful death recovery that they ever made against a tobacco company? Yes. Wow. That was- it, it wasn't so much that the individual uh, got a reward or a, an, an award in the case. It was that the, under the judge's leadership, documents became public that had been secreted for mm-hmm. more than a generation that really implicated the highest levels of the tobacco industry in some very uh, insidious targeting practices and the like. And to be honest, it really led in its own way to the big reforms that we saw that might have taken a, a number of years to unfold, but it was because of what uh, his honor did and, and uh, deserves a lot of credit for it. And I think, on the other hand, I think it was President Clinton that nominated you for the Third Circuit, but I felt there was an instance of a president reaching out to try to not reward but recognize a highly principled judge within the system. Mm. Thank you. Well, there you Bill. go. We'll be back with Judge Lee Sirk and Bill Lirak right after this. Thank you. All right, we are back with Judge Lee Sirk and Noble, noble career, illustrious career, and Bill Lirak, obviously uh, king of class action lawsuits and a uh, great lecturer and speaker in his own right. Um, but we were finishing up about the tobacco cases. Uh, that really uh, was the, the tipping point, the domino that set off all the, the litigation, wouldn't you say? Uh, well, I, I, I'm pretty sure I don't want to take too much credit, but I have to say people you know, always ask me uh, – whether the Reuben Carter case was the most important case in my life. And I, even though it got the most notoriety, I've always said that I was proudest of my work in the tobacco cases because, as Bill is kind enough to say, uh, I ordered the tobacco companies to open up their secret files and establish that they knew for years the risks of smoking but concealed it under the attorney-client privilege I should also add, by the way, that uh, uh, my decision in that case, not only was I removed from the case, but my decision was overruled and sent back to the court. Um, So uh, that's another reason I I must confess, and I know uh, a lot of people won't believe this, 
But I never issued a decision worrying about whether I would be reversed or not. It just never entered my my thinking. Mm -hmm. And frankly, didn't enter it here. Maybe it should have because uh, I was reversed. But it was on an entirely different basis. But I was removed because of my very uh, harsh criticism of the tobacco company. Mm -hmm. But very fortunately for the American public, before he was removed and reversed, the documents that he had ordered unsealed became public and were copied and could not, the the toothpaste never could be put back into the tube. And if you think about how many lives have been saved in America by the decline in smoking over the last 15 or 18 years, judicial decisions matter and they affect what happens after them. And again, I just want to say that was a very courageous and not standing and important decision. Well, Absolutely. And I just want to remind our listeners, we did a great show with Dr. Uh, Victor, Victor Denoble, Addiction Incorporated, a number of years ago. It's still up there on our podcast. Mm-hmm. Dr. Denoble, you want to listen to that. I think that was February, February of 2013. I, I believe think you're I'm right. very proud of that case. Yeah. And uh, you probably had some interaction with Dr. Denoble. Do you, you're, you're familiar with him? Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, he was the whistleblower. Uh, yeah, for yeah. Philip Morris. Yes, and without his data, I don't think, uh, you know, he studied the rats and he proved that tobacco and, and uh, acetaldehyde were uh, addictive. And they were actually right. trying to come up with concoctions to make them more addictive. But, yeah, uh, can I just interrupt for a minute, sure. Joe? You made me think of it. What's a big problem in our country today? Guns. Mm. Liability for guns. You know, it's interesting. The judicial system responded to the horrible abuse of the tobacco industry and over time brought them and held them to account. It's challenge now, maybe, can it do that with respect to guns? And and I know it's a very controversial subject, but nevertheless, a lot of people die from guns. This is... There's some legislation, though, that uh, that gives immunity, right? You want to talk about that? To me, and I do some blogging, and to me, that was one of the most extraordinary pieces of legislation that the government sought to immunize gun manufacturers from certain types of lawsuits, but it's never been done for hospitals or nurses or drug companies, people doing good works, trying to help people with their health. They don't get immunity, but the one industry that gets immunity from Congress is the gun industry, the, the industry that makes a product that kills people. Well, our president just said that if we had stricter gun laws, there'd be more people dead in Texas. I'm still not getting the math. (laughs) (laughs) Unbelievable. Yeah. But, uh, well, I guess we we have to talk at some point about Hurricane uh, Reuben Carter. Um, Not have to. Want to. (laughs) Want to. (laughs) We Uh, must. Now, you took this case. uh, I guess, tell us the facts of the case. uh, Well, first of all, uh, you should know, if you don't already, that cases uh, come to you on the federal court on a wheel. You just... It's what we call the luck of the draw. And uh, I was fortunate during the course of my career to be uh, in the lottery at the right time. And uh, that case came to me. I must say I knew absolutely nothing about it. It was in the papers that it was assigned to me. My kids immediately asked if I had listened to the Bob Dylan song. I said, no, and I don't want to. (laughs) Um, But the Contrary to the movie, I mean, the the entire case except for one day of argument was based upon the the records and the briefs that were submitted to me. Um, Reuben Carter never appeared and made any plea to me in person, although he did appear uh, 
the day after I uh, granted the writ and effectively uh, set him free, the next day for a bail hearing. And the case was remarkable in, in so many uh, different ways, but I uh, am absolutely convinced that the justice was done. And as I've said many times, people ask me if they think uh, he was guilty. I say if he was guilty, he's a better actor um, than uh, Clark Gable. <laughs> than every, <laughs> no, the, or, or Denzel Washington, Denzel Washington who played yeah. him in Hurricane, right. Yes. Well, tell us the facts. I mean, this was a triple murder conviction, right? Tell us. Uh, how long And how long had he been in jail, Your Honor? By 19 the time, years. 19, 19 years. years by the time the well, case came to you. It's sort of a long story. Let me see if I can compact it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, two African-American men went into a bar and killed or shot four people. And at the time, uh, Carter was with a young man named uh, John Artis, who he was, um, Artis was driving Carter home, a big thrill for him. Artis was a young college kid, um, track star, never done anything wrong. And the police stopped them, and, and Bill will appreciate the irony of this. They took Carter to the hospital and asked one of the survivors, are these the two men who shot you, which is, not exactly what I would call a neutral lineup. Right. And <laughs> wow. Uh, wow. the person said, no, these, these weren't the people. The descriptions that were given did not fit them. They gave a voluntary lie detector test. They appeared before the grand jury. Uh, grand jury refused to indict. And then eventually uh, two criminals who happened to be robbing a building uh, uh, next door claimed that they were witnesses. They originally said they couldn't identify who the culprits were, uh, the perpetrators. But suddenly, uh, I shouldn't say suddenly, something like nine months later, uh, they said that they could positively identify a Carter and artist. And that's what started it all. These are the, the the survivors of the shooting, or, or? No, no, the two criminals no. who went to other. Oh, criminals. the criminals. Yeah. yeah, they were just out. One of them was uh, breaking into a factory, and the other one was the lookout. And they were career criminals. And and the fascinating part of the story is, uh, the lawyers and the media here, uh, Selwyn Rab, eventually went to this fellow, his name was Alfred Bellow, and he was in prison, and he totally recanted because he understood that the government was not only giving him money, but they wouldn't indict him for any other crimes he committed, either before or after. And he was angry that they hadn't kept their part of the bargain. Hmm. So he told (laughs) Selwyn Rabb that he had lied, and that's brought on the second trial. But Judge... You're the hero in the story at the end, 19 years later. But what about the trial judge that allowed this man to be convicted? How did that happen? That's where the system really broke down. Well, it's I'm hesitant uh, to uh, condemn another judge, but I was very appalled and unhappy when I looked at this record. By the way, This record was the longest criminal proceeding in New Jersey 
there were about 10,000 pages. Uh, I had to hire a law clerk just to work on this case for three months. Oh, my gosh. Mm. Unreal. And do you realize, I mean, I just want people to realize how easy it is for a busy federal judge getting what's called a habeas corpus petition 20 years later and looking at 10,000 pages who has a docket that is demanding his attention to just say no, and this judge did not. Wow. We'll be back with Judge Lee Sarakin and Attorney Bill Lyrak right after this. All right, we're back with the award-winning It's Your Money and Your Life, and this is the time where Richard likes to thank our sponsors. I do like that, and I'll give a big thank you to our sponsors. Couldn't do the show without them. Michael Caranta with UBS is at the top of that list. Also, our favorite CPAs on the planet. We've got two groups of them, Polito Epic CPAs in San Marcos, a more traditional CPA firm, as well as Signature Analytics with Jason Kruger, a CFO service company. Also, Joel Grushkin, cost segregation initiatives, helping real estate owners improve their cash flow. Now, this improved cash flow, why don't you stash it at Mechanics Bank, the great niche market bank here in San Diego County, serving wealthy families and families that own real estate businesses. Sean Puckett, VP here of the San Diego region. Also, Hub International, employee benefits. Very confusing topic because of possible changes to the Health Care Act. Who knows? Hub International is your best bet for employee benefits. Also, Tony Lombardi, the LG Experience in the Lombardi Group, helping wealth advisors Make heroes out of CPAs to their very best clients. Talking about great wealth advisors, how about Paul Hines? Paul, of course, is the CEO of Hearthstone Private Wealth Management and is also the catalyst behind SeniorSafeAndSound.org here in San Diego, helping to prevent the financial abuse of the elderly. Also, our great friend Brenda Geiger, Geiger Law Office. No, they don't do any litigation. It's asset protection and estate planning, Geiger Law Office. And, of course, our great friend Michelle St. Clair, elite lifestyle management. For those of you who have no time, Elite Lifestyle Management is a great concierge service that can help from things that range from the simple to the more complex to help you get back your most valuable asset. That would be your time. And speaking of time, those of you who miss dinner time because you love our social much, love our show so much, that was hard to say. We can help them too, right, Joe? Absolutely. This is the Very Good Food Foundation. I'll head it up by Michelle Ciccarelli Lyrac who Bill is familiar with. It's his <laughs> beautiful bride. Uh, congrats to all her awards. Anyway, they put on great foodie events all year long and uh, do some great broadcasting as well uh, on those subjects on uh, sustainability and regarding to, to the food supply and many things related. And food waste. And food waste and, and everything related. Uh, also, there's Lestat's Coffee Houses, um, Normal Heights, University Heights. New Voted York, the best what? Uh, best coffee house in San Diego. The one That's in, it? The one in University also. They're all open 24-7, 365. And great food, great coffee, and uh, Bill had an event back then in May of 2010, I believe. We showed uh, Enron and had, uh, I don't know if Judge Sarakin was there, but you had a lot of judges in the audience that night. Uh, in any case, uh, many of these sponsors have been working with Richard uh, with great success for many, many years. And uh, Right, Richard? Yes, we quantify it in decades. <laughs> <laughs> like three of them. And if you go to iwaymoney.com, there's a sponsor tab, a drop-down menu, and there's a media kit there as well if you'd like to be a sponsor. But uh, there's all their information right there. And so there you have. But let's get back with uh, Judge Sarakin and Bill Lyrak and um, talk a little bit. Well, we talked about Hurricane Reuben Carter and the tobacco case, uh, two of your um, landmark cases, I would say. Um, your judicial philosophy, uh, your approach to the, to the job, and both on the trial. Ben- or, as know. well as the people that you had to interact with. Yeah. Um, 
What would you like to say about that? When I first started, uh, I don't think I had a judicial philosophy. I, I turned out, as I think most people perceive, uh, to become uh, a flaming liberal. <laughs> but my, my real philosophy from the day I started, because I had been a trial lawyer for 25 years before I went on the bench, was that I w- every case has a loser. And my philosophy was I want the loser to go out of the court feeling that they had a fair and full opportunity to be heard. I know so many judges that say, you know, sit down and shut up. Uh, uh, I don't have to hear from you. Uh, I was notorious for being slow and patient. I, I never wanted my tombstone to say he got rid of a lot of cases. Mm. Uh, so... Um, Basically, uh, that's what I was concerned about. And I had seen it uh, when you're a young lawyer in New Jersey, they require you to go to all courts at all levels. And I went into a municipal court and I watched this judge handle at least 50 cases in one night. And I went in to talk to him and I said, how can you maintain, you know, your patience, your kindness and he said, that's what the system is. He said, more people come into the local municipal court than any other court, and I want them to go out feeling that they have been treated fairly. And that was my ma- man- mantra mm-hmm. uh, for the rest of my judicial life. Mm. And most people, you know, are only going to have one or two interactions with the legal system in their life. And uh, I think it's so important that they just at least feel they got a fair shake. They got mm-hmm. heard. It, it's so frustrating, even as a lawyer, uh, when when you were shut off and, and you felt it was predetermined. I mean, what is the point? Allow people to speak their piece and be courteous. You know, San Diego, I just want to recognize him because he's such a dear friend of mine. Uh, Judge Larry Irving, who's now retired, was just the pinnacle of civility and fairness, and I never heard a person say a bad word about him. So you can decide contentious, difficult, big stakes things and have people walk away saying, I was treated I was treated fairly. I, mm-hmm. I never used a gavel. I never had a gavel in the really? entire time I was on bench because <laughs> I made up my mind that I was going to be so nice to everybody that I never had to hit a gavel to get people settled down or or, or, or quiet them. And um, I, I think it worked. Um, and there was some humor. I have to say that um, they say that everybody has to laugh at what a judge says, funny or not. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> I, I think I had a, a sense of humor, and uh, I, I think that helped a lot of trials. Well, that can, um, the tension, uh, humor at the right time can really just— Makes a big difference. Yeah, yes. it can just uh, allay a lot of uh, tension and fear and whatever. And so, Your Honor, question. There, there seems to be less respect for the judiciary now than there used to be in part because of— and we don't like to get political on the show, but let's be frank, the leader of this country— Loves making comments about well, unfortunate, you know, unfortunate comments. What, what are your thoughts about that? I, I mean, I, I find it quite unfortunate. I think it's an outrage, more than unfortunate. Mm. It, wh- what it does is it reduces the public respects respect for our court system, mm-hmm. uh, and that is so essential to the operation of a democracy. And the idea of the president of the United States of uh, saying that a judge can't sit on a case because his parents were Mexican and 
I, I can't begin to list the things that he has said. He even suggests the punishment that should be faced by certain people. He should just stay out of it. Right. Uh, and he wants now, he's asking or at least hinting that he wants the Justice Department to indict Hillary Clinton. <laughs> I mean, those are just things that a president should never do. And I think he is hurting the judicial system and in turn our democracy in a very profound way. Well, you've made well your, since we're going to wander into politics sure, a, a bit, uh, I think the judicial system deserves a lot of credit for so far standing up pretty sternly to some of the overreaching that we're seeing and have seen. But this is what I want to ask uh, Judge Lee. Uh, I just wonder if the Supreme Court will be up to it if they get the challenge later on. You know, they've been so political with their decisions and Citizens United and the like. I, I just wonder if the courts, they've always stood up to the test. They always stood, they stood up to President Nixon when it was required. But th- before we are done, mark my words, as they say, we're going to have a, a constitutional confrontation here. Hmm. I, I agree. Uh, I, I think one of the problems with the Supreme Court uh, is how political it has become. Uh, the appointment hmm. process, uh, they're all looking for... Uh, certain characteristics, certain philosophy in the appointment. And uh, I, I don't know any way to avoid that. I mean, the court is divided, and they say it shifts one way or the other over the course of time. But I don't think it's ever been quite so political. And the evidence of that is it's almost an easy thing to predict how justices will rule on particular issues. And it really shouldn't be that way. We... It shouldn't be so easy to know how they are going to come out. Uh, it should be a mystery, and uh, and we should all be surprised. And well, I think in answer to Bill's yeah. question, I, I I hope we will be surprised, but I'm not confident. Mm-hmm. I think that Justice Kennedy, if we, we can be a little bit personal about it and speculate, uh, he's an interesting man. He's been on the court a long time. He loves the country. He loves the court. He may really be called upon because the ideological balance has obviously been shifted with Mm -hmm. the last appointment. Mm -hmm. It may really fall to him, uh, uh, Mm. Judge Sarakin, to really uh, call the shot when the time comes. We'll see. Yeah, And he is the justice that, to me, should be the model. In other words, you can predict that they say he has the deciding vote. But the interesting thing is you cannot (laughs) say in advance how he will rule. And that, I think, should be uniform for all the justices. Mm. It should be, they should take the case on. I mean, everybody brings their own background to a decision. I can't deny it for myself. I've always been conscious of civil rights. And um, so I may be more open to a complaint than the average judge might be. And we have to pause it right there, though. Judge Lee Sarek and Bill Lyrak will be right back with them right after this. Hang on. We are back with Judge Lee Sarakin, notable judge from the state of New Jersey, both uh, the federal district judge and an appellate judge, uh, and also Bill Lirak, uh, notable king of class action lawsuits. And the first guest ever of this show. Absolutely. And my show, and, and he's been on the show, I think, about your fourth or fifth time, Bill. <laughs> we Frequent <don't>. flyer. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, we were talking at the break, uh, Judge Sarakin, about you met the son of a defendant. You put a guy away for 10 years, and you met his son. You want to tell us that story? Yes. 
Well, I, I hope this is evidence of what I said about my uh, judicial philosophy before. Uh, my wife and I were at a restaurant, you know, one of those restaurants when there are, there are 30 cars outside and two people inside <laughs> having dinner. And <laughs> as I uh, was walking out, there were two men seated at the bar. One was so obviously a bodyguard, you know, a 300-pounder, <laughs> I swear that I could see the the gun in his holster. Mm-hmm. And uh, just as we were walking out, he came over and tapped me on the shoulder and said, uh, use Judge Sarakin. And I said, yes, I am. He said, well, my boss, who's a young-looking man over there, Joey Provenzano, would like to talk to you. And I had just finished um, a trial involving the Provenzano family. I don't know if you're familiar with the name, uh, but they say The Sopranos was based Uh, The HBO show was based upon the uh, Provenzano family. They ran the Teamsters Union, Mm -hmm. and it was a long trial, and um, uh, I ended up, they were convicted, there were a series of them, of defendants, and I sent his father, uh, I think it was Sammy Pro, um, to prison for 10 years. So I was a little nervous. (laughs) you know, there's this, uh, well, I won't bother with that part. Anyway, um, he, he came up to me and he shook my hand and he said, uh, I just want you to know that my father th- thought he got a fair trial from you. About and that? I was relieved. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we walked outside and my wife, Margie turned to me and said, we're never going back to that restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's the story. How was the food, by the way, Judge? The food was fabulous. <laughs> it, it was a great place. and I, I We used to go there quite frequently, and I, I miss it. Hopefully you left a big tip. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. Now, you've done a lot of writing, Judge. You write for Huffington Post, about 200 columns there, right? Yes. And then you've written some plays. Um, and by the way, the film, did you have much input on the film itself? Uh, quite a bit. Uh, well, uh, the, there's a, a story involving the film. Uh, Reuben Carter was very anxious for me to play myself in the movie. And so they gave me the full Hollywood treatment. They, they brought me up to um, the studios for a screen test. They flew me up, my wife. They had a limo meet us. We had a great screen test, I thought, and everybody was very enthusiastic about it. And I have to admit, I was excited about the idea of playing myself in a movie. Um, and the only thing I said to them was, if if you don't use me, please don't get somebody arrogant and pompous. Mm-hmm. Well, I got a phone call uh, from Norman Jewison's office, Jewison's office mm-hmm. saying that they had hired... Rod Steiger. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and there, I mean, he's passed away, so I don't want to be too critical, but they couldn't have found anybody more pompous or arrogant. He was to play kind of the worst character in the movie. But the, <laughs> Otherwise, great movie. He was, right. he was gruff. <laughs> but the funny you part. Are, you wanted Paul Newman, right? right. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, I would have gone with Richard Dicer. <laughs> <laughs> but the funny part of the phone call is the end, the woman who called me, who was the uh, director's assistant, said, well, don't feel bad. There'll be other parts for you. <laughs> <laughs> Famous last words, yeah. And, and I think she must have been reading off of, <laughs> of a rejection kind of letter. But 
Well, so you know, that, that, that's what Still happened. waiting, right? Hey, yeah. don't yeah. feel bad. I heard George C. Scott on a 1987 interview last night, because I watched the Tonight Show regularly, and he went through a litany of plays. He had a play that uh, the matinee opener didn't even make it to that night. It closed that day. Yeah. I mean, he went off a, a bunch of turkeys and bombs. So don't feel bad, yeah. uh, you know. But uh, that was the only thing I was unhappy uh, in respect to the movie. And they took some liberties I didn't think were necessary. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was so upset because in the movie, they show Rod Steiger after he has set Reuben free after 19 years in prison, looking at his watch. And I said, well, that creates the impression that he's got a golf game, mm-hmm. just freed a man after 19 19- and I wrote to the director, and I said, can't you cut that out? And they said, oh, no, that's Rod. He's, that's the way he operates. So oh, I had to live with it. You could say, but that's not me, but okay. Yeah. Such, is, such is life. That's why I kind of like, doc- yeah. like documentaries better than yeah, features exactly. sometimes. Although, We've had that discussion. Although Battle of Sexes was a great film. We liked that. But the documentary was better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Wedding Cake. Now, what's this latest play you're, you're working on? Well, uh, I did a play uh, based upon a a baker refusing to uh, make and decorate a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. Mm. And uh, this is, as a matter of fact, I've got another play coming up uh, next Tuesday night, Mm -hmm. the 14th, Mm -hmm. uh, about the leaking of documents. And what I've been doing is I try to write plays – to quote Fred Friendly, who was a very good friend of mine, who said something to the effect, make the issue so difficult that the only way you can escape is by thinking. And I try to do that with, with all of the plays, make, make it balanced. And I really do it for the um, talk afterwards, mm-hmm. to, to get the audience involved and because I know none of them are going to Hollywood or, mm-hmm. or Broadway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I love to write, and um, the writing for the Huffington Post has been a great outlet for me because mm-hmm. I'm sort of freed mm-hmm. uh, from the strictures of being a judge. I can say what I want. Mm-hmm. Although Strom Thurmond did say to me that my opinion <laughs> sounded more like editorials <laughs> than legal opinions. <laughs> But next Tuesday night, what? Where is this playing, and what time? That's uh, at the North Coast. North Park. Coast okay. Rep. Uh, it's in Solana Beach, Beach yeah. right yes. by and the it's bond. free. Uh, so I can't say that we're frequently sold out because it's free. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, we usually get a very good turnout. Yeah. Well, that, and it's a wonderful great. theater. It's it is. We, had, it we is. had the Dick Enberg uh, play there. McGuire. Yes. McGuire. We, yeah. I went to that. Yeah. It was yeah. excellent. We were up for that. And yeah. they do, they, they've been there about 34, 35 years now. It's a wonderful theater. Yeah. And they've they, got Of Mice and Men coming up, John Steinberg. I, I saw yeah. it, and it is absolutely miraculous. Is I mm-hmm. mean, that theater does the most wonderful work on a small stage, mm-hmm. great sets. And uh, the artistic uh, director, Dave, uh, David Ellenstein, is mm-hmm. just they are so Brilliant. lucky to have Brilliant. him. Brilliant, yeah. Well, it's great to see acting. When well, I'm going to, I'm going to bring Bill into this because I went to a. He gave a two-hour, two or three-hour lecture over at San Diego State for business class of a negotiation because Bill was a great negotiator. And I asked the question at the end. I said, "What class could should these uh, students take to really polish their negotiation skills and become powerful negotiators?" And we, what did you say, Bill? You said acting. You said drama. Yeah. 
all the world's a stage and everybody <laughs> has parts to play. And I can't do the whole quote, but it's true <laughs> and it's guided me all my adult life. I just uh, well, it gets. I mean, you uh, have to learn how to deliver your message in the most powerful way. And if you can't uh, emote and gesticulate and and get the attention of of the people that matter, you're not going to get very far, right? And as simple as that. Right. Well, some skills I think have to be learned. They're very difficult to teach, really. Mm-hmm. But uh, learn by doing it. In, you know, it's trial by fire. And you know, I'm sure you didn't all win your very first cases, but uh, you know, you learn to win after a while, and you know, you learn you learn your skills, and right. And there's nothing like the walk from the courthouse back to your office if you've won a case. And there's nothing more depressing <laughs> than if you haven't. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I always said about litigation, it's a crazy way to make a living. If you think about things, mm-hmm. if you're a doctor, an architect, a builder, you're working cooperatively with other people. Mm-hmm. You're building Collaboration. You're putting the building right. up. You're an operation to save the person. In law, you've got someone just as smart as you, just as avaricious, just as well-educated, trying to screw up everything you're yeah. trying to do. What well, a way anyway, to you make could, a living. You, but you could retire, and a, and a judge and a lawyer can become good friends and buddies, so that's <laughs> yes. a testament to their, uh, their... And people put in jail respect you. So Absolutely. Okay. Some of my best friends are lawyers. <laughs> there you go. Uh, judge Lee Sarek and Bill Lirak, thank you so much. Uh, Richard Miso, great seeing you. Justin Harder, board operator. Thanks, Megan Santrovit. Thanks to Craig Blanke and Dave Sniff here at KFMB for all their help. All these podcasts are commercial free on iwinmoney.com. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.